Let's open our Bibles together to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've been uh, in our series now in 1 Corinthians for a couple of weeks, and we've seen um, how the Apostle Paul uses the first nine verses in this letter uh, to bring everyone to the table. And uh, through those nine verses, he's told us that it's Jesus who actually brings us all to the same table. Uh, this is what makes the church undivided. That's kind of the, the larger heading over top of uh, this first section in the book of 1 Corinthians. We are the church because Jesus has done this work within our lives and brought us together into this family. But and now as we get to verse 10, uh, Paul is getting to the meat of the letter. He's getting to the body of, of what he wants to write about. And he's digging in. He's addressing the most significant issues that this particular church is facing at this particular uh, time. And we need to understand that these were no small issues. This was a church that at this particular point was about three years old. And these were issues that were threatening to tear this church apart. And so after affirming their faith in Christ in the first nine verses, Paul is now uh, diving head on into the problem areas for the church in Corinth, and he begins by addressing one of the most significant shortcomings uh, that was dividing the church. In fact, it reminds me of a story that I read for the first time a few years ago. Uh, in the late 1990s in the southern United States, there was a church that had existed for more than a century that was now splitting apart. And the cause of the split, the location of a piano bench. So note this, um, it's not just the piano bench, it's the location of the piano bench. The article in the local newspaper reported the story like this, quote, the source of dissension in this once holy house of God is a piano bench which still sits behind the 1923 Steinberg to the left of the pulpit. Landover Baptist members who have friends or relatives at Holy Creek Baptist, so those are the two churches that they've divided into, say that the old bench was always a source of hostility and that they should have seen this division coming. At present, the Holy Creek congregation will be having four services a day. There has been an unspoken agreement mediated by Deacon Fred of the Landover Baptist Church. Each faction will have its own separate service with its own separate pastor. However, since the lead pastor is not speaking with the associate pastor, each will have their own service, which will be attended by factioned members. We are told that the services will be far enough apart that neither group will come into contact with the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services so as to please both sides and avoid any further conflict, get this, that could result in violence. End quote. You know, if, if that story weren't so tragic, it would be funny. And what's not funny is how many stories like that that have divided so many other churches. And the division that Paul uncovers in the Corinthian church in chapter 1 doesn't quite sink that low, but, but it's a division nonetheless. It's causing friction in the body of Christ. It's causing tension within the relationships that they have with one another, and it needs to be addressed. And so we have our Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Follow along with me as I begin reading verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that, no, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. All right, so perhaps you can see the problem as we read here in this passage. People in the church, in the Corinthian church, are divided over an issue of personal preference. So they're choosing sides. They're choosing which leader they want to follow, apparently to the exclusion of other leaders within uh, their church, but within the bigger church at large as well. And it's like they're picking sides in, in this game of playground church. Like, remember when you were a kid and you were on the playground and you're playing everybody's favorite game and sides are being chosen and, and one by one, kids are getting picked until there's that poor little kid at the end of the pile and he finally gets picked too, but then everyone gets chosen. And, and that's a little bit of what's like going on here in the Corinthian church. A lot of people are engaging in this game of playground church, except in this case, everyone else is picking the leader that they want to follow. So it's not like the leaders picking the people that, that they want to follow them. It's that everybody in the church is picking the leader that they want to go after. And the obvious result is that people who were once united around the same things are now being divided and they find themselves on different teams. One guy's coming along and saying, I like this guy and I want to follow him. Another guy comes along and says, I like this guy and I want to follow him. Another guy comes along and says, yeah, but I like this guy and I want to follow him. And, and it's separating them. It's causing tension, it's causing division and friction within the relationships within the church. And the thing is, this may not be the exact problem that um, shows up in our church, but here's the reality. Whenever you get a bunch of imperfect and messy people together in one place, there are bound to be times where we simply don't see things exactly the same way. We don't see eye to eye on absolutely everything. And, and so what Paul does here in this opening section is so helpful because he presents now this paradigm for what to do when you disagree. What do you do when you don't see eye to eye with a brother or sister in Christ? What do you do when, when someone else sees something just a little bit different than you do? And, and maybe it's like this. Maybe the context of, of the disagreement that you've been in or you are in is a little bit like this and it's in the church, but, but maybe it's not in a relationship within the church. Maybe it's with a relationship with somebody at home. Maybe it's, it's a, a business that you have and, and, and you do business with other believers and something's happened, something's fallen apart, something hasn't gone the way that you expected it to go and there's this friction, there's this division in the relationship now. What do you do when that division threatens the unity that we have in Jesus Christ? Now I want to pause here for a minute and um, offer something of a caveat before we get into this passage. Um, the highest calling that we have been given as a church. And the highest calling, really, that we have as followers of Jesus is to glorify God by making disciples. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and all of us who are saved in Jesus Christ are somewhere on that path of discipleship. But the reality is, we can go around this room and we're going to find out really quick that not all of us are at the same point on that path of discipleship. 
And because we're at different points on the path of discipleship, life together is going to get a little bit messy at times. We're going to disappoint and we're going to be disappointed. We're going to let other people down and other people are going to let us down. And sometimes that's going to create friction in the relationships that we have with one another. Just think about this biblically. Think about what's going on in the church in Corinth. There are divisions in the Corinthian church because there's people in the Corinthian church. Right? And these people are still struggling with sin within their lives. They're still battling against the sin nature. And sometimes the same thing is going to happen among us. The problem for us is, is that we look around and, and when something like this happens, we see the brokenness in the relationships and, and we see the friction, we see the division and, and on some level we know that that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Like we, we see it and we feel it and we know it. I feel it in my life, you feel it in your life and we know that that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And so if we take that down that same path just a little bit further, the question then becomes for us, well then, how is it supposed to be? And not only how is it supposed to be, but how do we get there? Like how do we get to from the place where there's the friction, there's the division, there's the tension in the relationship, whether it's with somebody in this room or whether it's somebody in your family or, or a brother or sister in Christ that's not here as part of this church family, but, but there's the friction, there's the tension. So how do we get from there to where the relationship is supposed to be? And so that's the question of this passage here and that then becomes the question of this message this morning. What do we do when we're divided? Well, uh, Paul gives us four lessons here in this passage. Four lessons in dealing with division. Um, here's the first lesson. You can jot this down. Number one, uh, appeal out of love. Appeal out of love. What do you do when, when there's division? What do you do when the relationship is broken down? Uh, number one, appeal out of love. Uh, look at what Paul says here in the first part of verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. So just... Stop here for a second and notice the tone that Paul is setting here in the very first words of this passage. He says, I appeal to you brothers. Now, Paul could have come into the Corinthian church and just started banging them over the head like constantly, nonstop, just pounding on them and telling them what to do and, and giving them Bible verses and, and writing Bible verses about what they should do. And, and that's in essence kind of what he's doing. But he could have come to them and, and just started pounding them over the head with everything that's gone wrong. I mean, just a few verses before in the introduction, he's told us that he's an apostle of Jesus. He has authority. He has authority in the church. He's planted this church. He still has authority over them. But instead of coming and taking that approach, he says to them, he appeals to them. And notice here, he appeals to them as a brother, as someone who is equal to them, as someone who genuinely cares about them and wants what is best for them. That word, um, appeal in verse 10, it means uh, to come alongside of someone to help them. So, so to walk up alongside of somebody else. And the reason that you're walking up alongside of them is because you want to help them. Now, do you see the love there? Like, can you feel the love that Paul's trying to communicate here? He says, I appeal to you, brothers. So, so just try and picture what's happening here. Something's broken down in the relationship, and Paul is setting the example here. Okay? He says that the way that you approach it is to go to the other person and say to them, listen, I care about you so much that even though it's awkward right now, 
even though it's a little bit weird right now, even though it's a little bit even confusing right now as to how exactly we got here, I care about you so much that I am going to come alongside of you and I am appealing to you. Let's do whatever we need to do to make this right. Like, no question, if you're going to do that, that takes humility. Like, that takes grace. That takes a special kind of love that cares about the other person, that cares about the relationship enough to risk putting yourself out there so that this thing can get better. And why does that matter so much? Why does it matter that we risk putting ourselves out there and coming alongside of the other person because we want to help, we want to do what we can to make it right? It matters just for the same reason that we talked about a few weeks ago when we opened up this series. It matters so much because Satan, the enemy of the church, the enemy of Jesus, the enemy of the word of God, the enemy of our souls, Satan would love nothing more than to wedge his way even further into a division that he's already created and in the process totally blow up the thing that the Lord has put together. So if that's the case, then notice here the spiritual glue that holds everything together. Look again at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, here it is, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now look at that again. He says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, by the authority of Jesus as the head of this church and as Lord over our lives. Notice he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our, collectively, our, together, the Lord that has saved you is the Lord that has saved me. The Lord who is Lord over your life is the Lord who is Lord over my life. He is our Lord Jesus Christ together. He's saying based on all that Jesus is and on everything that Jesus has done, I appeal to you, brothers, don't forget Jesus in your disagreement. Don't forget Jesus. Keep in mind here that they're being divided by an issue that is nothing more than personal preference. Like these are not theological issues that are core to their faith. This is like one guy coming along again and saying, I like this guy better than everybody else. And, and then another guy comes along and says, yeah, okay, but, but I like this guy better. And then another guy comes along and says, yeah, I hear both of you guys, but, but I like my guy better than I like both of your guys put together. Like, my guy can beat up your guy kind of thing. It's like this playground kind of church that's going on, and, and it's just not being productive in any sense of the term. And, and as a result of that, they're being divided. In fact, that word division in verse 10, it's this picture of something being ripped apart, something being torn to pieces, and these disagreements have escalated now to that point where they're causing that kind of division. And so I think there might be something of an urgency in Paul here where he's coming alongside of them and he's saying, hey, brothers, hey, wait just a second. Pump the brakes here a little bit, guys. Because you guys are tearing yourselves apart for the simple reason that you're not getting what you want. You're just not getting your preference. And so let's be clear. Let's be clear about something. Is there anything wrong with having a personal preference? No, of course not. There's nothing wrong with having personal preferences. Every single one of us have them. I have them, you have them. Our lives are chock full of personal preferences. You're gonna leave here in a few minutes after we're done here and 
you're going to get into your car and you're going to turn on the radio, uh, you're going to turn on your phone, listen to some music, listen to a podcast, whatever, and you're going to listen to whatever it is you want to listen to because that's what you like. That's your preference. That's great. And, and then you're going to get in your car and you're going to go home and you're going to have lunch and, or you're going to go to Christian Chicken, Swiss Chalet, and, and, and you're going to go and, and you're going you're gonna to order what you want or you're going to go home and make what you want for lunch because that's what you like. That's your preference and that's great. Like all of us have our own personal preferences. We have the things that we like and there's nothing wrong with them. And the reality is we bring those preferences to church with us too. We have our preferences for what we like and what we don't like. And part of what he's saying here is this. When it comes to this family right here, and you have a preference about something, but somebody else has a preference that may be the exact opposite of your preference, and neither one of those preferences are essential to this family, then in the midst of those preferences butting heads against one another, he's saying, don't forget Jesus. Don't forget Jesus. And, and think about this for a minute. How often does that actually happen? Like we forget Jesus at times, right? Because we want our preferences. And, and let's be honest, um, we never grow out of the desire to get our own way. Right? We don't. We, we never grow out of the, de- the desire to get our own way. Um, what changes over time is the way that we uh, verbalize or the way that we vocalize the disappointment that we have when we don't get our own way. So maybe when you were a little baby, you're sitting in the high chair and and you're depending on mom and dad to give you everything that you need, but then mom and dad don't give you what you want and you're ready to scream the roof off the place, right? You want that, but Lord willing, 40 years later, Lord willing, that's going to change, right? You're not going to verbalize, you're not going to vocalize your displeasure in the exact same way by screaming the roof off the place, but it doesn't change the reality that we never grow out of the desire to have our own way. And when we don't get our own way, how do we often respond? Well, two ways that we often respond when we don't get our own way is we protect and defend. We protect and defend, protect and defend, protect and defend. It's like we become these spiritual police officers of our own preference. We protect and defend. And we protect because we've worked so hard to get what we want. And we have our preferences and we want to protect that as much as possible. Or we defend ourselves and we defend our preferences and and we want that so much. And sometimes we get so lost in the swirl of protect and defend that we forget what actually matters the most. We forget Jesus. And part of what the Bible's teaching us here is Jesus did not give the fullness of himself for us so that we could simply tolerate the things that divide us. What's happening here, this is a call to realize that Jesus gave the fullness of himself to call us to a much higher standard of unity within the body of Christ. And so here's the standard. Look at what he says, verse 10. He says that all of you agree. So there's no division among you. And that you're united in the same mind and the same judgment. So what's he saying here? Well, here it is. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, that you all agree meaning that you speak the same thing. That's literally what that phrase means, that you speak the same thing and that you are united, he says, in the same mind, meaning that you think the same thing and that you are united in the same judgment, meaning that you are convinced of the same things. So notice here how all-encompassing this is. 
Unity in the body of Christ is not a superficial, surface-level thing. This is not to be taken lightly. So that when something happens, when something goes down and it goes south and it doesn't go the way that we expected it to go, when you're dealing with something and it's possible, it's possible for you to speak the same thing and to think the same thing and to see things in the same way, then let's do that for the sake of Jesus. Now, clarity here. Um, What does unity not mean? Unity does not mean uniformity, okay? So it's not like we're all trying to to pump out clones of each other. It's not like we're on an assembly line where you get to the end and a widget falls off at the end and it looks exactly like the million widgets who have gone before it, okay? Unity is not uniformity. And in fact, you you read through the Bible and and you get to the end in Revelation 7 and you have this glorious, unbelievable picture of all tribes and tongues and nations and languages gathered around the throne of God, all singing the same song of praise and worship and glory to God. And and the beautiful thing about that is that we're going to get to the end at Revelation 7 and and it's going to be so diverse. There's diversity within the unity and that's so much of what brings so much glory to God is that there is diversity within the unity. And so we're not all going to do the same things. We're not all going to look the same way. We're not all going to walk the same way. Unity doesn't necessarily mean uniformity. It also doesn't mean uh, compliance. It doesn't mean compliance. It, in other words, um, unity, um, to say something like, I get that's the way we're going, and I get that's where it's headed, but I don't really like it, but I guess I'll go along with it that doesn't really do anything at all to push the unity ball down the field. Okay? Um, That's not unity, that's conformity. Or that's compliance, rather. It's compliance. I can't help but think about um, this passage up on the screen in Philippians chapter 2. Paul here in Philippians 2, he's kind of in the middle of a thought and and we're picking it up right in the middle of a thought. He's talking to the Philippian church, much different context, but the application is much the same. He says this in Philippians 2 verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then the rest of the passage goes on to describe the love and the humility of Jesus who put his own interests aside, who laid his own life down, and who appeals to us out of love at the cross, who appeals to us out of love every single day of our lives. See, this is what it's going to take. Not just humility to put the preferences of others ahead of ourselves. It's not going to take just humility and it's not going to take just love. Yes, it's going to take those things, but ultimately it's going to take the life of Jesus being lived through you to put aside your own preferences for the sake of others. It's going to take the life of Jesus being lived through you to go to someone else and say, I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make this right. Let's make this right. That's number one. Appeal out of love. Here's the second lesson in dealing with division. Number two, deal with it directly. Deal with it directly. Um, It's a really important principle for us to see here. 
Uh, do you notice here that when Paul heard about the problems at the church in Corinth, notice what he did not do. He didn't sit down and pull out pen and parchment and write another letter to the church in Ephesus and say, hey guys, have you heard what's going down in Corinth? Have you heard how messy it is over there? Like, like I could tell you stories right now of all the stuff that's going down over in that church and didn't do that. Notice here that he did not uh, set sail on another missionary journey and broadcast the problems in Corinth to a bunch of people who had no idea what was going on and had no ability whatsoever to try and fix it. Didn't do that either. Instead, he's talking directly to the people who need to hear it. But it's not just that he's going straight to them. Notice what he says next in verse 11. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, um, we have no conclusive evidence as to who Chloe is. Uh, therefore, we have no conclusive evidence as to who her people are either. Uh, but apparently, Paul knew. And, and apparently, the church in Corinth knew who these people were. And these people carried enough weight in the church in Corinth that their, their thoughts, their leadership, their opinion was respected among the people. But don't miss this. Paul has no hesitation in naming the people who brought this to his attention. Now, don't forget what we just said. Don't forget everything that's come before this, okay? Paul is sitting down and he's writing this letter because he loves these people. He loves this church. He's having the hard conversation with them because he cares about them and he wants what's best for them. But he's not beating around the bush either. He's coming to them and saying to them, listen, it was Chloe's people. Like they're the ones who told me that you're having such a hard time getting along with each other. Important point for us here. The church that is united and not divided knows that it cannot waste time hiding behind vague statements that promote division instead of unity. It's, it's a statement like, um, well, here's my thing that I have a problem with, and I know that there's a bunch of other people in the church that think the same way too. Now, if, um, if you've been around church long enough, not just this church, but really just any church, 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 period, within your life, you've probably heard that statement before. Maybe you've heard it many times before. And, and loved ones, surely, surely we can see this. Statements like that are unity killers. I wonder if there might even be some of us who could tell stories of churches, maybe even churches that um, you've been a part of who have experienced brutal division over matters of preference because empty statements like that are given life. Let me just pause here for a second. I know this can be hard to hear. I get that. I, I respect that. In fact, this could be remarkably uncomfortable for some of you right now who have maybe come out of that experience. Maybe you've heard statements like that here. And it's hard. And yet at the same time, loved ones, I cannot overemphasize enough how massive of a deal this actually is. Jesus lived, died, rose again, and is building his church, and we are united in his name. 
And one of the most powerful ways that we represent his name is by the unity that he has given us and we strive to maintain that unity with one another. But again, I can't help but think of how many churches die tragic deaths because nobody was willing to stand up and be courageous enough and say, hey, listen, I love you. And I care about you. And I care about this church enough to be convinced that the most important thing that I can say to you right now is that Jesus needs to matter more to us than the location of a piano bench. Jesus needs to matter more to you and to me right now than, than our personal preferences, than what you prefer, than what I prefer. When words of division are given any kind of life, it's going to lead to the quarreling that Paul talks about in verse 11. He says, I, I know that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Notice here that they're not just talking about preferences anymore. They're fighting because they're not getting their own way. And when things are happening that are threatening to tear apart what the Lord has given us, there can't be any room for the grass to grow under that. And so, listen, that's, that's going to take a commitment from all of us. It's going to start with me. It's going to start with our elders, with our staff, with our ministry leaders, but it's going to take a commitment from every person sitting in this room right now, every person across the life of this church. It's going to take the commitment for all of us to be praying, Lord, please help me. Lord, please fill me with grace. Please fill me with humility. Please fill me with the kind of love that convinces my heart that the best thing that I can do, the most important thing that I can do is go to the person and deal with it directly. Like, Lord, just fill me. Lord, just help me. Just give me the strength. Give me the grace. Give me the humility to deal with it in a way that will honor you and that will ultimately build up the church. Four lessons in dealing with division, appeal out of love, deal with it directly. Here's number three. Clarify the problem. Clarify the problem. That's what Paul does next. Look at verse 12. He says, what I mean, so he's about to unpack now, get pretty specific. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Clarify the problem. Notice what he's doing here. He's, he's writing to them and he's saying, okay, you've got me in one corner. This is Paul speaking. You've got me in one corner. You've got Apollos in another corner. You've got Cephas, who we also know as Peter. You've got Peter in another corner. And then you've actually got Jesus in another corner after that. Now, uh, Paul, of course, we know is the one who planted this church a few years before he writes this letter. And people within the church, they know Paul. Uh, they love Paul. They respect him. He has authority over this church. Uh, we know from Acts chapter 18 that Apollos was a very gifted and influential communicator in the church in Corinth. Um, we don't know exactly what kind of influence Peter had on the church, but apparently his impact was fairly significant. 
And then there were some who were thought to be like some kind of uber spiritual group within the church who didn't uh, want to be accountable to any human leader at all and only put themselves under the authority of Jesus. And, and so Paul now is writing this and he's saying, listen, you're pitting everyone uh, against all of these different leaders. You're, you're pitting everyone against the others like it's some kind of competition. And like it's, it's one thing to cheer for your favorite sports team and to cheer for them only, even if you're like a New England Patriots fan, but there's forgiveness for that. And, but, but really, when you think about it, there's something just a little bit backwards when you're choosing your favorite preacher and you're cheering only for them. You're choosing your favorite leader and you're going only with them. I remember back in the day, um, this was before my day, but I have friends who are a bit older than me who were part of this, and back in the day there were these like preaching competitions. And so uh, guys would, would line up and they would write the very best sermon that they could possibly write and then they would come together and stand before this small panel of judges and they would preach their sermon. And they would, uh, they would get feedback, they would get judged based on the sermon that they preach as they stand in front of these panel of judges. And one by one, guys would just keep getting voted off Sermon Island. And, and finally there was, there was like one guy that was left standing at the end and he was the winner, he'd get the medal. I think there was an actual trophy that they got. And I remember one of my older friends telling me this and I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, are you serious? They actually had this thing where, where you would like a preach off and can't even imagine doing that. This is hard enough. But that's kind of the point that Paul's getting at here. And he comes to them and he says, wait a minute. Is Christ divided? He says, was I crucified for you? Who were you baptized into? And he says, I'm actually glad that I didn't baptize anyone except these few people so that nobody would ever think that it's about me or what I can do. Now, as you read this, notice that there's two key words in these verses that get repeated. So Bible Study 101 here, when you're reading a passage and you see some words that get repeated uh, as frequently as these two words in this passage, you, you take notice of that. You underline it, you highlight it, circle it, whatever you need to do to make it stand out because those are important words. So notice here, just in these couple of verses, notice the word follow and the word baptize. What do those two words have in common? They're both words of identity. And once again, Paul's bringing us back to what really matters the most. He's bringing us back to Jesus. The call upon your life is not to follow a preacher. It is not to follow a person. The call upon your life is to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily and follow after him. That's the beginning. That's the baseline of your identity. Not only that, but in baptism, you are identifying with Jesus. You're identifying with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection. So to follow and to be baptized is to be immersed in the life of Jesus. So it's like he's saying here, you got to see the fundamental difference here. Paul and Apollos and Peter, as godly of men as they are, they have not changed your life. They have not changed your identity. They cannot change who you are. Instead, those guys are being used by the one who has changed who you are. See, here's the thing. As we start to examine preferences within our lives and, and things start to break down in our relationships because those preferences have become so big for us, one thing that usually becomes really clear is that when we see it like that, we also begin to understand that the focus has shifted so that it's not on Jesus and it's more on who? On me. It's about what I want. 
And whenever the focus becomes a bunch of different people who have a bunch of different preferences, that's going to go every direction that you can imagine. And so if the church then tries to cater to the preferences of all the different people, not only will that be completely exhausting in every possible way, but ultimately then, who does it take the focus off of? Jesus. I mean, it's true in our own lives too, isn't it? Like, just look at your own life. Whenever you try to please other people and we make them the focus of our lives, who are we missing out on? We're missing out on Jesus. And who are we exhausting in every possible way because we can't keep up with all the people that we're trying to please? We're exhausting us. And as we exhaust us, we miss Jesus. And then we've lost sight of the real meaning and the purpose for which we have been put here by God. We've got to get to the heart. It says, clarify the problem as much as possible. There's, uh, there's a saying that goes like this. To be unclear is to be unkind. To be unclear is to be unkind. You know, I can think back to some specific moments in my life where I sat across the table from somebody else and um, I knew that the person on the other side of the table loved me. I knew that they cared about me. And they had built up enough stock within my life to actually sit down at the table and have the conversation with me. And, but I knew that if we were sitting down at the table and we were having the conversation, it's because um, they, they saw something in my life and they needed to tell me about something that needed to change within my life because something within my life had become bigger than it should have been. It had taken over um, in my life and, and no question Part of what made those moments so helpful is that the person sitting across the table from me cared enough to be clear. And not just to be clear, like, like let's be clear about being clear. It's not just to be clear, but don't miss this in the text. We care enough to be clear in a way that points us back to Jesus. Why? Because our unity stands on our collective call to follow Jesus. Our unity stands on our collective identity in Jesus so can we commit with one another? Let's be a family that points each other to Jesus. Four lessons. Um, appeal out of love, deal with it directly, clarify the problem, and then finally this. Number four, focus on the gospel. Focus on the gospel. Verse 17. For Christ uh, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, Paul had been given a mission, and he knew what his mission was. He was there to preach the gospel. And uh, he's definitely not saying that baptism was not important. He's not saying that. All he's saying is that even baptism, one of these issues that apparently was threatening to divide the church, even baptism falls under a greater priority, which is to communicate, to preach the gospel that the baptism represents. And notice this. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So do you see what he's doing here? He's bringing everything back full circle. He's taking it all the way back to the thing that's causing so much division. And he's saying to them, one of the reasons that you're divided right now is because your focus is on people. You're focused on which preacher you like best. You're focused on who baptized you, which means really then that you're focused on yourself. And the way towards unity and the way away from division is to focus on Jesus. He's like, listen, I'm not here to impress you with what I know or how I can say it. I just want you to know Jesus because he's the one who has the power to change a life. And in a very real way, we all have the same mission. 
We all have the mission of preaching the gospel, of communicating the gospel, of telling other people about Jesus. You may not stand in front of a room full of people and preach. You may not stand on a street corner and preach. You may not stand in front of a classroom and teach, but we all have this same mission. We've all been given this gospel to communicate because the story of every person's life falls into the greater story of God's love for every person. Here's the the point that kind of goes over all of it. It's never about the saved. It's always about the Savior. It's always about the Savior. Listen, Christ is never divided. He's never divided. He's the one who brings us together. He's the one who keeps us together. He doesn't drive us apart. He brings us together. Even when our preferences threaten to tear us apart, the focus should be on who unites us, not on what divides us. And when we focus on the who instead of the what, that should always then drive us to the cross. And when it drives us to the cross, it should grow us in greater humility. And when humility rules within each of our lives, we're still going to have our preferences. And those preferences are still going to mean a lot to us, and there's not anything that's necessarily wrong with that. But when humility rules, we're going to see the preferences of our brothers and sisters a lot differently as well. And that humility, when it's fueled by grace, can keep us from making our preferences more than they actually are a preference. two Bible verses that sit over the top of all of this, verses I was thinking about this week as, as I was preparing, and um, we'll let God's word be the last word here. Romans 12, verse 10. Paul says this, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Devotion to and honor above in our relationships with each other. And then this, John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen, love, loving one another all across the body of Christ, all across the family of God in this place. Love, 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 love. We're not saying that just to be fluffy. We're saying that because this is the new command that Christ has given to us. We love one another, and what's the result? Everyone will know. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We're all disciples at different points on the pathway of discipleship. And sometimes it's going to get messy. It's going to get hard. And when it does... Let's be committed to loving one another in the mess.